Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold, episode 51. This is February 6th, if you're listening when we drop for the February 7th issue of JBJS. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal Bone and Joint Surgery, and my colleague across the way, as always... Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction. You didn't say your name. Oh, my name is Antonia Chen. FYI. <laughs> Everyone already knows who you are. Twice, no, no, no. So. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. It's February. I know. Chinese New Year. Right? Happy Chinese yeah, New Year. Uh, Lunar New Year. <laughs> oh, very good. Yes. <laughs> for those who are regular listeners, or if you're coming to us for the first time, the opinions that you're going to hear are my own and Dr. Chen's. They do not reflect the editorial board uh, of JBJS or the other constituent journals, the board of trustees, and uh, assorted members of the peanut gallery. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Miller Review Course. There is still time for you to sign up and get your CME on or get your skill set squared away, your knowledge set squared away for upcoming examinations, uh, be they ABOS or otherwise. It is February, but obviously we record these things earlier. And I just have to point out that the University of Michigan champions, national champions, Jim Harbaugh was dodging the uh, Gatorade bath like authors trying to dodge the uh, methodology reviews at the journal. But they, they, they caught up to him. They caught up to him. You know, the first Gatorade bath was uh, Mike Ditka in 1984. That was so, the original. I did not know that, actually. That's a yeah, good fun so, fact. A fun, a fun fact for our sports medicine colleagues or those who are interested. And uno pati papi. All right. Without further ado, let's head into uh, what's at the top of the pile. You can hear from Dr. Katz regarding total joint arthroplasty utilization in persons over 65 years of age at Vantage Medicare? Question mark. This is permanently free and addresses one of the articles that we will be discussing later. So um, definitely check that out. Then we have Surgery and the Aging Orthopedic Surgeon by Bosco. What's important, a patient perspective on um, being a survivor of testicular cancer from Bernstein al. This is permanently free. Dr. Bernstein is also a resident uh, at our Harvard Combined Program. And I want to say a shout out to him for being honest and open about this. It's something that we don't talk about health issues per se in orthopedics or surgery in general or medicine in general. So thanks for sharing that. And he just got his PhD too. So double kudos. Uh, Then we have sex disparities among fellowship program directors in orthopedic surgery by Silvestre and strategies to increase the Spanish speaking workforce in orthopedic surgery within the U.S. by Rodarte. Then uh, from another former uh, Harvard combined orthopedic graduate, Dr. Lightsey, capacity and declination of care in the surgical patient. This is also permanently free. It's the Harvard issue, the February 7th Harvard issue at the journal. That's it for Harvard though, we're, we're moving on. So into the headlines here, uh, I have impact of teriparatide on complications and patient reported outcomes 
of patients undergoing long spinal fusion according to bone density. This is by Mohanty and colleagues. Uh, it is 30 days free. There is an infographic and a comment. So the trifecta, perfecta, triple play, if you're playing the horses. This is a, a study that sort of follows a number of other articles that have been published in JBJS and also in some of the leading spine publications regarding the use of teriparatide to improve bone density, particularly in adult deformity surgery in patients in the peer group based on age in which that type of spinal deformity develops, you typically do have both a combination of frailty and reduced bone density. This can increase the risk for hardware failure, wound breakdown, mechanical failure over time. They're already pretty intensive surgeries with long operative times, uh, intensive intervention, and uh, sometimes stage procedures. So there's a high comorbidity profile even around the surgeries themselves. This is a large number of patients, 540 patients. It's a single surgeon practice. My guess is it's Dr. Lenke's clinical practice, just based on the fact that he's the senior author, but I don't know that for a fact. They don't explicitly say that. They just say, uh, retrospectively analyze patients treated by a single surgeon between 2014 and 2021. So, uh, you know, the modern time period. And they did propensity score matching to look at the treatment of teriparatide uh, in combination with reduced bone mineral density, and then those with reduced bone density without teriparatide, and then uh, uh, patients with normal bone mineral density. So uh, a good number of patients to consider. I know a lot of the deformity uh, surgeons in our area, and particularly in our Harvard combined system, do routinely uh, use teriparatide in the perioperative period uh, for patients where they feel it is indicated. Obviously, with the propensity score approach here, they are trying to um, effectuate a standardization across the potential for selection or indication bias. There may also be some issues with secular trends, although a little bit less so because it's it's you know a pretty narrow time window. However, there's also an expertise bias, particularly with respect to the outcomes given that's a single surgeon practice. And uh, Dr. Lenke, of course, is internationally known and recognized from the state capital to the nation's capital, from the Big Apple to the Pineapple. There's probably not a bigger name uh, in the field of, of spine surgery or among one of like the major stars uh, in the field. That being said, you know, I do think they have very uh, interesting findings including the fact that the patients who were treated with teriparatide had lower reoperation and symptomatic pseudoarthrosis rates at two-year follow-up compared to those who were osteopenic. Patient reporting clinical outcomes for osteoporotic patients on teriparatide were not different from those with normal bone mineral density. And that, that's about what you would expect. You, you want everyone to basically have you know, the best outcome possible. It would be unusual uh, if you were to see, for example, that the osteoporotic patients treated with teriparatide had superior outcomes at two years to the, the normal bone mineral density patients. Of course, there may be reduced outcomes for patients not treated with teriparatide because of the effects of the complications, which can then you know, create kind of a ceiling effect for the optimal outcome from the surgeries in the long run. So really interesting work. This topic is a favorite, it seems, for the people who like 
select articles for the web-based longitudinal assessment. So this is getting the, the Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Soze uh, stamp or uh, award. I don't know what, what you want to call it. I, I definitely think you're going to see this. How about designation? Yeah, the designation. Good. Yes. I think you're, you're definitely going to see this on tests, be it OITE, WBLA, step one. This is one to, you know, tuck away, keep an eye on. Completely agree. A second that it's one of those areas that obviously this is talking about spine, but everyone asks these same questions in all different parts of orthopedics, right? Even in arthroplasty, we use a lot of cementless products. So, you know, does bone quality matter in trauma, things like that. So, you know, in the future, developing guidelines on how to help with these uh, patients, because we're going to touch about that in just a little bit when it comes to um, the downsides about different medications that are from our patients who have poor bone quality which segues us really nicely into the next one, right? <laughs> yeah, gonna... yeah, no, it's a perfect uh, perfect path to your headline, which is atypical versus typical subtrochanteric femoral fractures, disparate patient profiles, similar outcomes, a little bit of a journalistic title there. This is by Gibbons and colleagues. It does also have an infographic. So kind of like the uh, flip side of the coin, um, although different medications, of course. Right. So very different medications, both to treat osteoporosis. This is looking more at the effect that bisphosphonates have. So um, this is a study um, looking at atypical femur fractures versus typical subtrochanteric femur fractures. And the end story is actually in the title. Got different patient profiles and similar outcomes. So I can just stop talking now. But just to give you a little more details, asyptypical subcrochanteric femur fractures have become a more common point because more and more people are using bisphosphonates. These are the atypical ones are characterized by low energy mechanism of injury, minimal communication, normally a lateral origin of the fracture line, and that typically is transverse in nature and localized periosteal or endosteal thickening of the lateral cortex. So it's kind of you know, the opposite of a thing. You, would th you wouldn't think that there'd be um, increased endosteal thickening, but there is as the body tries to remodel the bone. And typically the fracture line extends through both cortices and it may be associated with a medial spike, which may affect reductions and things like that. Typical femur fractures often come from, sorry, typical subtrochanteric femur fractures often come from traumatic high energy mechanism of injury and occur throughout the length of the femur and they tend to have a spiral pattern and be comminuted. So most of the time, most studies don't compare the two of them. So this is an institutional study looking at NYU, looking at the different outcome types. And the primary aim of the study was to evaluate whether there are differences in the demographic features, injury characteristics, and clinical outcomes between patients who underwent operative fixation. Again, these are only patients who got operative fixation um, for these two different types of fractures. And they looked at these type of fracture patterns. They listed out a bunch of OTA, AO classification types, but they wanted to exclude the one that, that were reverse obliquity fractures, intertroch fractures with subtrochanteric extensions, incomplete or impending atypical fractures, and pathological fractures secondary to metastasis and periprosthetic fractures. And they classify by the major criteria of using the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. And patients need a minimum of six-month follow-up. I would have loved to see your one-year follow-up. We all know with hip fracture patients that may not be all that feasible. So they identified 220 subtrochanteric fractures after going through all the exclusion factors. And I saw the exclusion criteria and 75% were classified as typical and 25% were atypical. 
And not surprisingly, the atypical cohort was predominantly female and most likely to be on bisphosphonates. And these fractures were of lower energy mechanism. There were no differences between the two cohorts in time in terms of time from presentation of surgery, operative time, estimated blood loss, post-operative hemoglobin and hematocrit, or the number of blood units that were transfused. Patients in the atypical cohort were more likely to be treated with a 10 millimeter cephalomedronil versus the typical ones had an 11 millimeter cephalomedronil. I don't think that's that clinically relevant in the grand scheme of things. There were no difference in terms of the need for open versus closed fracture reduction, you know, knowing to the fact that subtrochanteric fractures are typically harder to um, reduce, but there were no difference in these, these two different fracture patterns, even with that medial spike. Either the type of cephalomedronil used, the number of distal locking screws placed, or post-operative coronal fracture alignment, but the fractures in the typical cohort were reduced more frequently in the neutral lateral alignment. There are no difference between groups in terms of hospital quality measures, mortality rates, readmission rates, or complication rates, which are all things that we look for. And these complications included broken screws, broken nails, and fracture non-unions. And there's no difference between groups in time to radiographic healing. Um, now the days, the time-wise was, you know, 260 days versus 246 days with huge long standard deviations, as you can imagine when it comes to fracture healing in these groups. So the conclusion was exactly in the title, disparate groups of patients, which is not surprising, but they did have similar outcomes, which I found actually um, quite nice to see, especially since these patients tend to be osteoporotic. You might think that their bone healing uh, might not be as good and they may not be able to heal as well as our typical um, subtroke fracture patients. So that's my take on it. Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, so I have some reservations about this paper, uh, even though it was uh, partially conducted at Jamaica Hospital Medical Center in Richmond Hill, New York, which brings me back to my high school years. Uh, I used to date a girl in, in, who lived in Richmond Hill off of Atlantic Avenue, but that doesn't make Things me Things I learned about you. Huh? Yeah, well, you know, I, it didn't end well, and maybe that's why I have these negative feelings for um, this, this article. I don't know. It just... So first off, I I, I don't I, I commented on the journalistic style before disparate patient profiles, similar outcomes, you know, news at eleven. Like that doesn't tell you anything really. Um, news. <laughs> you know, it, it's like the orthopedic tattler headlines. Like, is this clickbait? It it seems to me more like this. I I can see this. A lot of these journalistic titles tend to be like, oh, we've got this data set. What question could we ask it? What what question could we ask the oracle of our data set? And, you know, that that tends to be a problem. If you want to hear more about it, you can read about it in my book, An Insider's Guide to Academic Publishing in Orthopedic Surgery and Spine Surgery, forthcoming in 2025. So you'll have to wait till next year to read about it, but I'll tell you all about it in that book. Nonetheless, I feel like there is really, you know, it's like 220 subtrochanteric fractures. At the end of the day, it's it's not that many, especially when they only have 55 atypical ones. And, you know, to go through all this with a conclusion that it's like, the conclusion is patients who sustain a subtrochanteric femur fracture can expect similar outcome profiles, regardless of fracture type. I, I mean, isn't that really kind of like what you would expect like the goal is that we're getting everyone to the same place. The question is sort of how do you get there and what are the missteps? So you basically have to know how to treat them properly, which then brings in the indication bias and the expertise bias because these are all 
you know, treated within the NYU health system, presumably. I don't know if Jamaica Hospital is part of that or not, but whatever, in the New York area, potentially by the same people or individuals who have been trained by the same people. And it's a small group. Again, there's there's going to be restricted clinical variation. So to do all this, to only say, well, the outcomes, you know, you can tell patients that the outcomes will be the same. Well, the outcome wouldn't be the same if I decided not to treat them at all, right? Like, if you're selecting the right treatment, the outcomes will be good, but you have to know what the right treatment is. That's the part where I, that, that that's the the missing piece of the puzzle, basically. True. And, and I think they try to tease it down a little bit because I'm curious about from an orthopedic standpoint, fixation types. If you have, you know, different types of patients with osteoporosis that they did just as well. That's what was surprising to me. I would think there would be, let's say, a larger nail that you would need for those patients because they'd have larger canals or you need different fixation types or something like that to have the same outcomes. But you're right. There's some expertise there that other centers may not have. So, you know, future studies could be atypical versus typical fractures. This is all in our hands. Like the, the, this should be the preface before it should, in our hands. True. I, I disagree with the level of evidence. This is level four evidence as far as I'm concerned. And I don't think this is a prognostic study either. So I, I disagree with our, uh, our our editorial colleagues who rendered, said this was level three evidence or agreed with the author's uh, self-reported LOE. And I don't, I don't agree this is a prognostic study. This is a, a clinical epidemiology wrote retrospective review of our experience treating these these cases. I agree with that. Next, is the your case on hold featurette? As if we didn't already do enough case on hold piece for that last one. But here's something else that might go on hold. Uh, Medicare Advantage is associated with lower utilization of total joint arthroplasty by Anderson and colleagues. And this has a uh, visual summary. So for visual learners, you can check that out. So this is work that used the 20% sample of 2018 Medicare data, looking to compare Medicare Advantage to, you know, essentially standard Medicare, assessing the rate at which patients were being seen uh, after a diagnosis of osteoarthritis, and then uh, the extent to which they basically received total joint arthroplasty. And this is all, you know, the narrative around these kinds of studies, it always tends to be Medicare Advantage is the bad actor. And Medicare Advantage is, you know, preventing patients from getting the care that they need. That's sort of like the underlying narrative here. The narrative is never to play devil's advocate. The rate for patients on regular Medicare, there could be overutilization there. It's always, right? it's always the Medicare rate is the gold standard. And if you're not at the Medicare rate, then somehow that's bad. There could be numerous different reasons why Medicare Advantage, the patients in the Medicare Advantage cohort have surgical interventions at rates lower than those uh, in Medicare. And Dr. Katz, who uh, Dr. Chen and I uh, work with quite regularly, and who's also a methods deputy editor at the journal and a colleague wrote a very thoughtful uh, piece uh, about this, which we already mentioned uh, in in the top of the pile section. I'm gonna try to not reiterate points that Dr. Katz was making, although I may do that somewhat tangentially. But 
Essentially, the author's stance is Medicare Advantage coverage is associated with lower utilization of elective inpatient hip and knee total joint arthroplasty. And it was also associated with a longer time to orthopedic surgeon evaluation and surgical procedure. But then when you look in their you know, contextualization, maybe we would call it their limitation section, but their contextualization, they said that they don't know the reasons for these facts. And I'm going to read it right here, a direct quote. Patients with longer timelines prior to seeing an orthopedic surgeon or undergoing total joint arthroplasty may have been undergoing high quality non-operative treatment that was effectively managing the osteoarthritis. So if you have no way of constructing, which of course these claims-based analyses of any type do not, you have no way of constructing the timeline of how an individual gets from point A to point B. If an individual who is on Medicare Advantage and is satisfied with the non-operative platform, doesn't elect to push for surgery, whereas someone on the non-Medicare Advantage, we'll say standard Medicare, maybe they're also satisfied, but let's just say they have a uh, an aggressive surgeon who's like, you got to get this done. You want it done now. You don't want it to wait, you know, two years from now, you'll be two years older. You're not able to tolerate the surgery. That's one way that things get, you know, pushed. There are lots of different ways to try to sell people on surgery, of course, but if it's Medicare Advantage and the surgeon knows that they're going to have to do a whole bunch of like prior authorization or, I mean, you're getting prior authorization with Medicare itself at this time as well. So it isn't, you know, maybe in some respects, a lot of the managed care aspects of Medicare, we're starting to see them, you know, narrow the gap, if you will, between Medicare and Medicare Advantage. But let's just for argument's sake, say, you know, that same aggressive surgeon, but it's Medicare Advantage. And they're like, all right, I'm, I just, I just don't want to go through all that hassle. So I'm not going to push that, that individual. The problem here is really there's no gold standard. And you cannot just assume that you can say that there's a difference, but you can't say that med the people who are getting it on the Medicare, that's the right, that's the right answer. And anything less than that is the wrong answer. Also, perhaps, and in some respects, I think there is some again, tangential or circumstantial evidence that points to toward this, if the populations that preferentially prefer Medicare Advantage, which tend to be in some respects, uh, higher uh, diversity race-wise, ethnicity-wise, possibly even with socioeconomic drivers around the Medicare Advantage platform, those may also be the populations who are less enthusiastic about rushing to surgery in, in, for, for a number of reasons, historical and practical in, in real time. And that also may be a confounding factor. I'm not saying it explains everything. And believe me, I, 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 I am empathetic to the fact that Medicare Advantage puts up a lot of roadblocks, probably for the wrong reasons. But I also think it's problematic when you say that the without clinical granularity, that the gold standard is this number amongst, you know, just because it's higher. That, that's the gold standard. It, it, there must be a problem if this group and that group are, don't have the same the same figure. And I think there's so many other factors that fall into it, regardless of insurance, right? Pre patient preference. In all honesty, I think a lot of surgeons, especially in academic medical centers, don't check for that insurance type, right? So I wouldn't know if they have a pre-authorization that needs to be. So, you know, if a patient comes in and is biased towards surgery or not towards surgery, that's something that's nothing to do with insurance, but that has to do with the patient. Then maybe there's a bigger population of patients who do that. But you're right. There is no gold standard. And that's the main take home message I would say here for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely interesting information. It's information that you can use or 
dissect how you'd want to. I think the underlying argument is that, you know, we need to have more permissive uh, protocols for Medicare Advantage. Uh, because what, what other argument is there? That's the only one. Well, I, I just mean, like, what else are the would they be getting at? Right. That's the take-home goal. Very interesting. All right. Want to tell us about right. more of the articles in JBJS this episode? Yes. So what else do we have this month? We have the effect of implant density on adolescent idiopathic scoliosis fusion results of the minimize implants, maximize outcomes, randomized clinical trial. This is by Larson and colleagues. Uh, it does have a does have a comment. This was work at a multi-center randomized study, including patients undergoing spinal fusion for single thoracic curves. And they found that in the setting of spinal fusion for primary thoracic AIS curves, the uh, percent coronal curve correction obtained with the use of a low implant density construct and that obtained with the use of a high implant density construct were equivalent. So, you know, maybe use a, a less intensive uh, constructs in that context. Um, check it out. Then we have longitudinal changes in overall 3D supraspinatus muscle volume and intramuscular fatty infiltration after arthroscopic rotator cuff repair by Shu al. This is 30 days free with a comment. This uh, investigation includes 47 patients who underwent arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and had six-point Dixon shoulder MRI preoperatively and three and 12 months postoperatively. And uh, they're looking at the supraspinatus volume, uh, 3D, um, and, and some other measures, which showed no longitudinal change between the preoperative baseline and the 12-month follow-up after uh, arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. This is uh, an interesting uh, prospective level two study. So do check that out, particularly if you work in the sports or shoulder space. Then we have uh, Bieber and colleagues, uh, strong association between growth hormone therapy and proximal tibial physeal avulsion fractures in children and adolescents, a case control study. This is also 30 days free. This is from the Hospital for Special Surgery. It's a case control study involving patients four to 18 years of age uh, with proximal tibial physeal avulsion fractures treated between 2016 and 2023. Uh, they have 132 patients included in the analysis um, and 11% of the patients with proximal tibial physeal avulsion fractures were on therapy at the time of injury as compared with zero of those uh, with mid-shaft uh, tibial fractures. So some interesting associations drawn there, 11% versus 0%. This is hypothesis generating work. And, and something to consider going forward, a kind of a foundational seed for future research. And then last, we have in vivo effect of single intraarticular injection of tranexamic acid on articular cartilage and meniscus study in a rat model. This is by Wang and colleagues. It is permanently free. This is work that was done uh, in Hong Kong. That's a basic science study indicating that concentrations of tranexamic acid at or above 100 milligrams per milliliter can lead to decreased cell viability in both cartilage and meniscus. Uh, the clinical relevance here is that using these types of concentrations for intraarticular injection may result in adverse effects um, on the intraarticular structures. So uh, a, a cautionary guide with some immediate translational capacity in some respects. That's all we have. Thanks for giving us your time. If you like what you heard, uh, be sure to subscribe, give us a five-star rating, 
hit the notifications button, make sure you get every single episode of your cases on hold and listen to the back issues if you haven't already. And if you have, then I, you know you might just want to listen to what we have to say again. If you didn't like what you hear, thanks for sticking with us this long and maybe come back next time because uh, Dr. Chen will be heading up that discussion and you might like what she has to say better. One of our colleagues said that Dr. Chen is the nice one, good cop and I'm the bad cop. Every good parent relationship has to have that. Let me tell you. I just take the Kobe Bryant uh, stance that it's like uh, any article that I'm reviewing, I want those folks at the end of listening to my talk to be like, wow, uh, maybe we made a mistake somewhere along the way in going into orthopedic research. No, I'm just kidding. You know I like stuff every now and again. I had I had stuff I liked. I like Dr. Lenke's study. There's stuff that we do like and stuff that you don't like. And guess what? We're learning from all of it. That's the goal. That's right. There's no bad studies here. There's just studies that we learn more from and studies that we learn differently from. Perfect. You said like a there good cop. Go. All right. Till next time, everyone. <laughs>